Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name's Barney Hoskins. I'm here with my colleague, Mark Pringle. Hello, Barney. And we're here with our good friend and co-founder of Rocks Back Pages, Martin Collier. Welcome. Mm. Good morning, all. Hello, Martin. <laughs> Hello, Martin. <laughs> it's been too long. So good to, uh, to have you here, Martin. And one of the things we're going to talk about while you're here is how Rocks Back Pages came to be just the whole convoluted history of RBP. So please stay tuned for that. Um, before we go too further, just to give Martin some context, is that his father named and co-invented Skiffle. Mm. So I think, I think that's a bit of the important <laughs> rock history is in the room with us right Absolutely, now. Absolutely, Mark. Well, uh, thank you for I that, know how far that footnote. Runs in the family, but <laughs> we'll, see. we'll see. But yeah, we we will be talking later about how the three of us came together almost twenty over twenty years ago. But we're also going to be talking, as usual, about what's new on Rock's Back Pages this week. And Martin, I'm sure, will have something to say about all of this. We're going to start with the great Curtis Mayfield, who Rhino have just released a box set comprising his first four solo albums after he left The Impressions. So we thought it was a suitable opportunity to talk about a man I think we'd probably all agree is a genius of soul music. Fabulous. Yeah, Martin, what's your, what's your take on Curtis? Well, what I always really liked about uh, Mayfield was, and I have to say, to introduce it, that reading Grail Marcus's Mystery Train at a certain point in my life, soon after it had come out, it kind of influenced the way that I looked at music and listened to music. Yeah. And there are various references to Curtis in the book, in the section especially about Staggerly, the myth of Staggerly, yes. song, and Sly Stone's Riot. And there's just a bit... Can I just read a little bit from Yeah. Oh, he's, he's done his homework. Oh, you do um, like guests who do homework. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you edit out me trying to find the page? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's staying that's in. That's staying in. Oh, damn it. Um, Be careful what you ask. So Staggerly was a fairy tale, but like most of the Staggerly movies, Superfly, which Curtis Mayfield famously soundtracked, had a soundtrack by an established soul singer. And in this case, Curtis Mayfield's songs were not background, but criticism. Mayfield had appeared in the picture singing in a dealer's bar, grinding out an attempted parody of his audience, but they thought it was a celebration. His music worked against the fantasy because to him one incident in the movie counted for more than all its triumphs. Freddy's dead. Pushing dope for the man, he sang, incredulous and disgusted. The movie hadn't even slowed to give Freddy an epitaph, but Mayfield clearly aimed his song at the hero as well. And interestingly, the lyrics were not in the movie, even though the backing track was. Mayfield held off until the film was in the theatres, then wrote the words, released the records, and so took on the picture on his own turf, the radio, you could say he chickened out. You could also say he was very smart. Yeah, no, that's pretty yeah, interesting. Yeah. For me, I mean, first of all, as, as a kind of R&B guitar player, as I once was, I didn't even realise I was being influenced by Curtis when I was, because Hendrix's Axis Boulder's Love was a massive record for me when I was in my early teens. And it's Hendrix's Curtis Mayfield record in some respects. I mean, there are so many songs which absolutely come from the Curtis Cannon. Wonderful guitar player. Well, I, 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 was lucky, I was lucky to see Curtis live about three or four times. Mm. And the first time, I saw him at a free concert at Crystal Palace Bowl, open-air concert. And I couldn't hear him at first. I realised I had to retune to his voice, which was higher than one could almost <laughs> imagine. And once I'd tuned in, he was absolutely right there. Interestingly, I... 
talking to Richard Williams about Mayfield's appearance on the Old Grey Whistle Test mm -hmm. when Richard was hosting, he said that they turned their amps all the way down to one but managed to make their short sets sound and feel like the best gig happening anywhere in the world yeah. that night. Yeah. And you had to lean in to hear Curtis, uh, didn't you? There totally. was filigree and yeah. it was delicate and it was... But still had drive and groove. I mean, my my first memory of Mayfield, I think, was not the old Grey Whistle Test performance, but I think on top of the pops. He was so startlingly different, not just from the usual sort of <laughs> pop acts on top of the pops, but just from any kind of soul artist, really, that I had seen yeah. before. And I still think of him as very different from yes. so many of the, the giants in the soul R&B canon. And it may explain partly why he's never mentioned in the same breath as kind of Marvin Gaye or Otis or Redding or Aretha James Franklin. Brown. When I, I, or James Brown. And I think he absolutely should be. But there's something about the voice, yeah. which is never like a big sort of barking yeah. soul voice. And there's something about his appearance, there's something about his guitar playing, yeah. the subtlety and nuances of, of his music that I think perhaps count against well, his long-term reputation. I, I think you're saying subtlety and nuance. I think his music is all about subtlety yes. and nuance. You know? Yes, Mark. Um, uh, uh, and a, there's a delicacy there which is rare in any popular music, you know, let alone R&B. Interestingly, that he's one of a group of black singers, male black singers, who, singing extraordinarily high, Eddie Kendricks being another one, yeah. Yeah. is something that... Outside of a few people in the Four Seasons and so on and so forth, is that white singers generally don't do the the white American voice was often a baritone. You think about Jim Morrison, those sorts yeah, of people, yeah. and yet you get in black music. This is a thing where black men don't lose their masculinity. Singing, singing in the female range, which is effectively what he was doing. Well, if he started as he started out with Jerry Butler, one of the great baritone singers, you know, yeah. Yeah. And something like "He Will Break Your Heart." The guitar and the voice on that are so fantastic. <sighs> That's just a kind of oh my god! No, I, 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 I think we can safely say for all three of us, he's a hero. Yeah. I mean, and the tragedy of how his life ends up. I mean, of all things. This is a man who I've heard no tittle-tattle of in terms of drugs and womanising. He may well have done a bit of womanising, but he was, by the standards of popular music, full stop, he was a good man. And yes. he's playing a charity concert in New York and a lighting tower falls on it and he's paralysed from the neck down. You know, for, for something like that to happen mm. to someone who led a blameless life is, <laughs> you know... But he's sort of the opposite. He's just kind of anti-size stone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, he turned up for gigs time. Yeah, <laughs> in that kind of black exploitation era... He stands out as as almost this kind of mm, preacher slash philosopher. You yeah. know, he he's this wise old kind of owl whose music is really about. It never celebrates the violence and darkness of those times. It's it's always a critique, but it's never a holier than thou critique. Mm -hmm. There's so much compassion and wisdom of, in yeah, his yeah. in his songs yeah. and. And he's sung about women in a delightful way. Absolutely, yeah, respectfully. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the song like The Makings of You, yeah. what, what a gorgeous yeah. you know, song that is. Yeah, yeah. A, a celebration of kind of woman. You can hear him in all sorts of people, too. Yeah. I think you can hear him in Van Morrison. Yeah. The, uh, mm -hmm. You know, the Woodstock Van Morrison. And, and there is a downside to him. There's pricks like Paul Weller glummed onto him that almost <laughs> ruined him for us at one point in the 80s. But, yeah. you know, moving yeah. me. But anyway, yeah. No, yeah. moving on up. Yeah, moving on up and moving on to... Uh, <laughs> very <laughs> this good. Is a, this is a, another very difficult segue <laughs> from, from the magnificent Mayfield to... <clears throat> 
Sieg Sieg Sputnik. How do we do that? How did I do, boys? Um, there is, there's no easy way to go into the world of Tony James and Martin Degville. But what we have as our featured audio interview this week is a 1985 interview with Tony and Martin about Sieg Sieg Sputnik, who already at that point are, are clearly sort of massively overhyped. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about particularly Tony's conversation with Julian Henry. <laughs> well, I mean, Tony James and Martin Degville are both fairly kind of ghastly individuals, you know. Uh, <laughs> Tony, Don't pull your punches, Mark. Tony James, he never does. No. Tony James is sort of claiming that they're reinventing rock and roll as filtered through video, television and science fiction movies. That actually what the music is, the soundtrack... To, Sig Sig, uh, to the Sig Sig Sputnik movie. Um, and he's immensely pleased with himself. Mm. And actually, the, the pleasure I get from listening to that is this band tanked. I mean, they had about kind of one half a hit. And that, so that was, that was it is of, all about the hubris, really, the, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Because so, Tony clearly <laughs> thought they, that some, he was going to change the paradigm of pop. Well, yeah. I love the fact that, you know, I, I, I was looking into them last night because I did remember them and actually quite fondly. And it's funny because it, it, the musical is just kind of rockabilly over a Georgia Moroda beat with a bit of sound effect. Well, a bit of suicide, a lot of suicide. A lot of suicide, suicide Frankie's... Frankie's yeah, yeah, but without absolutely. any of the good bits of suicide. <laughs> yes, <yeah>. suicide <laughs> but crap. Yes, but they, um, they, that's great that we invented the future was their tagline. <laughs> Unfortunately, their website has not been updated since 2015. But, <laughs> but I, I, you know, so maybe... The, yeah. <laughs> we invented the past, we invented I, the 80s. And then, then Martin Dagville is just a rather simplest, simple little clothes horse. I mean, you listen to him talking and he's a, just a bit thick when he's... What's his accent? Yeah, it's Walsall. He grew up in Walsall. So it, it, it's sort of like, if you could have kind of imagined Boy George coming from Walsall, there's a sort of camp lisping <laughs> thing going on, but with this, you know, wonderfully down to a sort of brummy, yeah. brummy sort of <laughs> undertone to it. And, and he's talking about his clothes, which is just so uninteresting. Both of them have a go at oh, their sort know. of current popular stars. That Degville has a go at Boy George for being safe. Well, I'm sorry, you know. I mean... For, Whatever you think of Boy George, he's a hundred times the, the performer, the writer, the everything that David was. Tony James has a go at Billy Idol, his erstwhile colleague in Generation yes. X. Who's, who's at this point quite a big star, becoming a really yeah. big star in America. And, and, well, A, you can just sort of... Just a little touch of resentment. He also has a go at like, Billy Idol's rock and roll lifestyle because Billy Idol was hoovering up the drugs like a maniac at that point. And, I, you know, that, that's fair enough. I'm not going to complain about that. But, you know, he's, he's also trying to claim that Billy Idol's just a kind of a refried rocker, which is essentially true. Yeah, yeah there's a lot but, of Eddie Cochran in all these yeah, bands, strangely. Well, you know... But, <laughs> cross with Sweet. But, 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 you know, Billy Idol went on and... So I, actually, I think two or three Billy Idol records I absolutely love, yeah. you know? Mm. I mean, the good, proper, classic rock and roll tunes, you know? Yeah. And six is Sputnik. Well, I think you know their story so. is told by the fact that their first producer was Giorgio Moroder, and their second producer was Stock Aitken and Waterman. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's such a it's such an eighties story, isn't yeah, it? In, yeah. a, in, in in many ways, it's nineteen eighty five, and it's it's sort of the eighties going into into such sort of excessive, sort of grandiose over conceptualization. Yes, yes, yeah. I mean, listening to the interview last night. 
I had some sympathy with them because in some ways they were ahead of their time. They were thinking about the kind of multimedia experience yeah. of pop yeah. with televisions and computers and it's all about image yeah, and I'm so... not even really interested in music anymore. But the problem is with, with Tony is that it's, it's so sort of manufactured. It's like he's trying to be some kind of Malcolm McLaren. And, it, and the problem is there's no heart in the music yeah. at all. Yeah. And it's so... There's not a point of view. There's no. Not a, really, there's not a kind no, of... It's just a sort of shameless celebration it. of kind of plasticity yeah. and surface and spectacle. And a lot of that kind of I'm, buffalo styling. Yeah. yeah. It's kind I'm, of so face. I'm, I'm marvelling at the photograph we have in front of us. <laughs> of the band. I mean, bloody the hell. The the headdresses. The, yeah, the yeah. Kind of, I mean, if it had worked, of course, we might be saying something different now. But the problem yeah, is, they invited such Schadenfreude, didn't <laughs> yes. they? And um, so they're very. T- I mean, you know, they talk about, oh, you know, we're not interested in trash rock and all that kind of sort of junky stuff. I mean, the fact is, three years previously, he Tony was actually playing bass with Johnny Sunday yep, yep, um, yep. in, in in London. Well, that maybe, maybe that's a what. Lesson, yes. so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, I need to do something different. But so there we. Go. I mean, it's worth it's worth listening to just for the hubris, yes. isn't it? And I also, I, I think it's a very good of the eighties. Yeah, it, it's a good snapshot of eighties hype and the journalist part in that process as yeah. the interviewer. Uh, so yeah, no, it's, it's it's well worth listening to, but just sort of like you know, keep a sick bag close at hand. <laughs> so here's a brief clip of Tony James talking about the five stages of rock and roll. Of course, Sig Sig Sputnik being the fifth and sort of defining stage <laughs> of, uh, of 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 rock and roll. <laughs> generation Briefly, just to note 
the featured writer of the week. This is the three free pieces by Mac Randall, who, interestingly, of course, wrote a book about Radiohead uh, long before our Radiohead anthology came out. But these are... Mac wrote for Musician, he wrote for Harp, I think he wrote for the Boston Phoenix. I think he's currently the editor of Jazz Times in America. Very nice dude. Three pieces. One, a conversation, a fascinating conversation between Bill Nelson and Robert Wyatt, just about maverick musics mm-hmm. and politics. A profile of Linda Thompson after she breaks her 17-year silence on the fashionably late album in 2002. And a conversation with Beck when Guero came out in uh, 2005. So that's Mac Randall. Mark, I'm going to hand over to you now. You're going to tell us about highlights of what's going into the Rockback Pages library for subscribers this week. Well, amongst the jewels, just starting off with Del Shannon being interviewed by Ian Dove in Record Mirror in 62, just for a single quote, really. He said, Say, I was really disappointed last week. I wanted to go and see your Arsenal play that Spanish team, Real Madrid. <laughs> I mean, this made all of us roll, roll with laughter in the office. The it did seem d- very improbable, it didn't it? It didn't. <laughs> Moving swiftly on, Nick Jones interviewing Dinah Ross in 65. This is actually a really great little piece. This is coming off the back of the kind of failure of the Motown tour at the beginning of 65, when a bunch of Motown artists came up and played to half-empty halls around England. It really, really wasn't a success. And so she's a bit baffled. She says, it's very surprising that Wilson, Pickett and James Brown are doing well here, here being the UK. They've always sold in the States, but it's not that big. It's like, you know, because... because, Around exactly the same time, the Stax, the first Stax tour had come over here and absolutely torn the place yeah. out. She said, I dig Wilson Pickett's voice, but I think he's shouting a lot more than he used to and ruining it a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a bit of, like, Motown versus Stax tension yeah. go- going on there. Uh, it, it's a good piece, generally. She talks about, sort of, you know, her place in the Supremes and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Moving on, our live show is more subversive than Street Fighting Man, admits Keith Richards to Keith Altham, NME 1968. And it's Keith and Mick being interviewed about Beggar's Banquet, which is about to come out, and about the performance movie, which, of course, Mick is a star in, and it features Keith's then-girlfriend, Anita Pallenberg. And uh, 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 Keith... Ulfenmar says, perhaps Mick would like to tell us something about his new movie, Performance, on which he's just begun work. I make love to Anita Pallenberg in it a few times, of course. She's my leading light in the film. I'm not telling him any more about it because it doesn't come out until next year. Well, the fact is there's Keith in the room and, and <laughs> Mick is kind of... And apparently the story is that Keith parked his car in Palace Square while this was being filmed, fuming at the notion that Mick was in the mm. same bath <laughs> naked as, as, as his Of course, partner. Keith got his revenge many years later. But he did Infamous indeed. aside about the dimensions of Mick's todger. <laughs> Moving on to 76, a Robert Duncan report on a new recreational drug which is appearing in America. When I first started reading this, I thought it was a spoof piece. It was about, you know, uh, you know a bit like the cake, cake thing, you know. And it isn't. It's actually about ketamine which is now a huge drug in the sort of, and has been since the 90s, particularly in this country, in the rave scene and so on and so forth. Yes. This is in 1976, he talked about ketamine. It pretty much disappeared. It didn't develop any real traction, so far as I'm aware. What scene was it part of there? Well, it, it came out of the West Coast. The tubes apparently liked doing it. Fee Waybill was kind of prone to a bit of ketamine. They were tubes in a K-hole. The tubes in a K-hole. But, but it's really about, this is a new drug. 
and it could be the next big thing. And it wasn't. I mean, basically, the, what was already in America was PCP, Angel Dust, yeah. which are, is not dissimilar from what I've heard to Ketamine in terms of its effects. PCP was massively widespread right through to the 80s. I mean, the go-go scene was fueled on Angel Dust. Ketamine didn't develop any traction. Then in this country, in around 91, 92, 93, it started coming in. And it's now everywhere. This, you know, you, you, go, you see, see like someone wandering down the street, as they say in this article, looking like they're walking in slow motion. They're on Ketamine. <laughs> Swiftly on to 78, uh, Viv Stanchel being interviewed by David Hancock. And it's, it's a Viv Stanchel. He's kind of on his way down into a sort of serious lunacy, which more or less did him in in the end, didn't it? Was this interview done in a, with Viv in a swimming yeah, pool? Yeah, no, we had this it was picture, the ho- didn't I we? I think it was the holiday in Swiss Cottage, and he's in the swimming pool. <laughs> Not uh, the holiday in Los Angeles. No, or and, uh, no, and, uh, and, and Dave Hancock is crouching by the side of the pool. He says in the end, he his, Viv more or less forced him into the water. Says <laughs> um, that four bedroom house I had was absolutely full of clutter. It was rather like the inside of my head in reverse, and I think that's, mm, that's kind of quite quite significant. Mm. Then he says, then the tarantula snuffed it. They hear the pet tarantula. We didn't notice for three days, and it had been such a lively little rascal. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, (laughs) uh, A year later, Mick Middles for Sounds seeing Joy Division live at the old Factory Club in the Russell Club in in Manchester. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, uh, And Mick Middles uh, was kind of Sounds as Mr Manchester and was a big... Cheerleader for well, one of the only journalists to actually interview Ian Curtis or Joy Division when Curtis was still alive. That, that's absolutely right. Um, and his final line in this rave review of some lives is they never fail to amaze me with their morbid genius, sensuous, seductive, and deadly. This band cry real tears. I mean, mm. you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's great, it's great mm. stuff. Right. Jumping, I managed to miss out the 80s this time around. Funny oh, that. We, I only yeah. dealt with the 80s with the 60s. I but think C.C. covered it. It's brought back so many horrible memories. <laughs> Admirable Andrew Weatherall been interviewed by David Benham, Melody Maker in '94, and he had famously produced Screamadelica or kind of co-produced Screamadelica for Primal Scream, done a lot of remix work, producing his own stuff, and you get the feeling he resents being boxed into a certain sort of dance ghetto. Um, he says, "There's all this brilliant music around. Why is everyone up their own arse? Why is everything so compartmentalised?" And you know, he, he, he's absolutely right. And he says later on, if I had 20 minutes of my life to spend, I'd rather listen to a selection of Ramones and Phil Spector records than one 20-minute ambient track. You know, well, you know. Yeah. Right. Mm. Quite, quite right, mate. Great. Uh, <laughs> lastly, in 98, Mark Weingarten, big profile interview with Missy, the wonderful Missy Elliott. She says, I'm very picky about my clothes. My people know that if my wardrobe isn't right or my hair isn't right, I ain't going on on stage. Carrying <laughs> <laughs> on a, a wonderful um, tradition of it's, it, it's a very nice piece. I mean, I think we're all very fond of Missy Elliott. Um, Absolutely. Uh, uh, and she comes over as a wonderful character, strong. She carved out areas for, as a woman in black music, yep. which was really no one had done before. Yep. You know, and as a producer, way before she started having hits, she was, her and her partner, Timberland, were producing and writing for all kinds of people, not just in hip-hop, but in R&B. So a kind of Betty Wright figure. Uh, yeah, kind of actually. You, you know, um, a sort of a sort of modern Betty Wright figure. On. I mean, she had a big hit for Arlie and people like that. You yeah. Know. 
Um, Absolutely. Um, and she's still around. I would always hope I, that she makes some kind oh, of proper comeback. Well, she, uh, last year she had a really cr- cracking record out mm. with a great video. I don't know how well it did mm. because it's all... I love that first album. I thought was absolutely yeah. magnificent. When we had our office up in Crouch End, mm. that was on the hi-fi you yeah. know, all the time. And I really like... I have to say, it, it wasn't a huge hit, but I really liked the second album that she did with Timberland, The Real World, which was a kind of cyber-funk mm, right. version of hip-hop that I thought was 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 sort of brilliant and futuristic. Mm-hmm. But, but she, she also took from interesting areas. I mean, she, she was listening to a lot of Anglo-Asian music at the time. Yeah, of course. There is that kind of thread running through. Sort of Bangor influence. Bangor, in, yeah. in, in, and she sampled yeah, so that, didn't and, she, uh, on that, yeah. that yeah. great track. Fabulous. So uh, just a couple of pieces to mention from more recent years. Well, I saw that you actually added a piece on Harlan Howard, which which I would just do, like to flag up because he's one of the great songwriters mm-hmm. of, of country music. And it's just him and his own words talking about how he came to Nashville and started writing yeah. songs for, the, for the, the great artists there. Also, Max Bell, the great Max Bell, one of my NME heroes from, from the 70s and 80s, sent me the other day an unpublished and sort of hair-raising piece about... Bobby Whitlock of uh, Delaney and Bonnie and Derek and the Dominoes, fame, yeah. which was, I think, commissioned but never published by Classic Rock mm-hmm. because I think it was just, it was too outrageous in terms of the sort of antics that Whitlock and Clapton and <laughs> Pearl Radle and so forth got up Did to. Did you ever read Both Whitlock's here and book? in America. He no, book, I haven't. I haven't, no. I haven't read it either. No. But this is, is just the sort there. of stories of sort of tearing around, you know, sort of. Towns like Sonning in Berkshire, so off their heads, or racing around in Eric's sort of Rolls Royce, trying to find heroin. I mean, it is it's, not it's, a great it's, place it's, to find heroin. No, yeah. no but I, I think they still managed to find it. And then a new writer who's just come on board, Lois Wilson of Mojo fame, and we're really delighted to have her on RBP now. And we've 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 sort of opened her account, as it were, with a piece about heroes of ours, Dan Pan and Spooner Oldham from, from 2016. Indeed. Yeah, Southern Soul songwriters par excellence. Yeah, no. So Absolutely. that's some of the stuff that's new for subscribers. So, you know, have a look and think about subscribing. Please also do review this podcast on iTunes and elsewhere if you feel so inclined and indeed if you actually do enjoy it. Um, <laughs> we are, we're now going to... We're actually going to go back in time, aren't we, Martin? We are, we're, we're, we're going to sort of try and work out what the three of us are actually doing, <laughs> sitting how it came to be. How did we get here <laughs> from what a so long, 20... strange trip it's been. What a long, strange uh, do, do, trip. Do you want me to take... That's right, right back to the beginning, beginning. I'm always interested in this because, well, you know... Your memory is probably just Yeah, this mine. is a, um, well, like Rushman. Yeah, you know, well, you get well, three people together, you get... We're all going to contradict well, yeah, I mean, that's for sure. Way before Rock's Back Pages. Yes. I was at a free concert in the park in the summer of 1974. Toots and the Mage Judy Felix... G.T. Uh, Moore and his reggae guitars. Uh, Roger McGuinn, I think, oh. was headlining it rather badly. And this guy sat next to me and we got talking... And he said, can you keep my place? And he went away. And then starting art school up September, this head came around the door and said, you kept my place for me at, <laughs> at the park. And, and I, I did, never and, came and back. I never and, came back. You know, yeah. and that was Martin. And we ended up in our band together, Hot House, what I talked about a couple of weeks ago with Michelle Kirsch.
take it further by from from up to... Well, Martin, what's, what's your... I, I, it'd be great now if you just contradicted everything no, no, Mark actually, said. No, Mark was absolutely right. But I remember, I remembered him because he was writing in a little leather-bound notebook and I thought, oh, I'm going to art college in a couple of weeks. I must get myself a leather-bound notebook and actually write yeah, some the, things the, down. And be... The difference is that if you did that, you'd be able to read your handwriting. <laughs> Martin has the most immaculate handwriting you've ever seen. And Mark is I, I officially illegible. It is officially yeah. illegible. So yeah. my Dr. recall, uh, where I sort of inserted my... Myself yes. into the Pringle Collier story <laughs> um, is that I wrote a book about the band, and I before that came out, I wrote a little something about Bill Graham, the promoter, a bit in the Guardian, in a bitchery, and I wrote a sort of footnote to that because I interviewed Bill Graham, who'd obviously put the band on, a, you know, the Fillmore and Winterland and so forth, and Bill then died probably about three months later in a helicopter crash. And Martin got in touch with me mm-hmm. um, because I'd mentioned I was writing a book about the band. And Martin was, as it turned out, a huge fan of the band as well, a huge, as, well as a huge fan of Southern Soul. And so that was really where it all coalesced, yeah, that we, think... we, we shared these musical tastes. Yes, I had a load of magazines with articles about the band that in those pre-internet days were actually quite hard to find. There was, I think I had Cream, there was a Grill Marcus. And you had videos, you had a video of the Eat Your Document. Yes, I did, because um, I collected a bunch film. of Dylan stuff. So, so I, I came round to yours. Yes, we were you both did. actually living in Clapham, as it turned this out. So true. didn't have to come very yeah. far. Yeah. And we became... <laughs> yes. Southwestern London. And you were an incredible help, and you've been an incredible help to me throughout my, you know, authorial career, but we became fast friends, and through that, I was introduced to Mark. Yes. Um, think, at a gig, come... I think? No, no, see, no, this, well, the rational <laughs> one. You're convinced it was a gig. I seem to remember that Martin took the two of us out for lunch at Joe Allen's when I was... Yeah, I don't remember the Joe Allen's While lunch. I was freelancing at World Service. At World Service, where I was um, uh, That was, in right. my recollection, the very first time I That's met you. That's yeah. probably true, actually. But I think the first idea that you had for Rocks Back Pages was when you came back from oh, yeah, so that in was, Woodstock. That Is was that certainly true? after that, because Mark came to visit me in Woodstock. That's right. right. I think you sort of sent him to Woodstock <laughs> uh, for the sort of tour. Really. <laughs> and we, oh, we did a bit of a tour and we stayed the night I saw the big pink we were both a lot younger than then um, (laughs) obviously Uh, but so what then happened was I moved back to London with my family in late 99 and it was the sort of height of the dot com madness that's right and so everyone was was rambling around trying to think of ideas that were going to make the millions the route to uh, the yacht the route to the yacht as our friend Matt Snow <laughs> unfortunately it just became yeah. the route to yacht rock yeah exactly that, that's <laughs> the only yacht really that we've ever seen um, but so I kind of woke up one day and had this idea of of you know what became Rocks Back Pages which was a library of articles going back you know at that point kind of 50 years but so that if you were a fan of of say Roy Harper was 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 the, was the name because someone had asked me or to be you know if I was if I wanted uh, to find a writer on on Roy Harper who, I thought who you would were I doing, go weren't to weren't you meant to be doing some sleeve notes no I got a, I basically got an inquiry with an email I can't remember from a press officer looking for someone to write some Roy Harper but, so I had this kind of vision of wouldn't it be great if you could see you know in a kind of ideal what every article had ever been written about Roy yeah. Harper you know start, starting in the early 60s right up to and I remember day. we got very excited by the idea that y- you would get 
accounts of things when they were released before there was any critical blanket about them. It was you the know, idea the, in a some way. Some records got really badly reviewed when they came yeah, out, which sure. are now seen as being able to go back to what was written, what was mm-hmm. said then, rather than yes. the kind of the, the sort of you know retrospective yes. consensus. It, 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 it's yes. what, what academics call reception studies, which is where right. you return to contemporary Prime, yeah. primary sources. Um, uh, ironically, is what, what you were just saying about album reviews is one of the myths which has emerged is that all the classic albums, with one or two exceptions, were slagged off at the time. And actually, what I've discovered is that most of them were spotted were, as were, were, were spotted <laughs> as classic albums at the time. Yeah, so, you know, the, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but yes, the idea was to kind of view pop music history through contemporaneous sources rather than the, the mojos and yeah. the uncuts and the sort of the, the retrospective history. And, and that it would be this resource, yeah. this... Precisely. It would, it would be the library of writing on popular music and, and all genres. Yeah. So you were literally the only person I knew who had designed and built a website for anybody. And yeah. I knew that through Martin that you, you were doing websites for the BBC and other clients. Yeah. And you loved the music that, that we loved. And yeah. I, I just, I remember calling you, getting your number yeah, yeah. from Martin, calling you yeah. and saying, you know, what do you think? Would you be interested? And we went and had lunch at Wagamama's. Well, there's, <laughs> I thought it was Joe Allen's. No, that was before you <laughs> went to America. Joe, Joe Wagamama. No, no, no don't, don't confuse the issue. Oh, well, all well, I remember is meeting at Martin's. We actually had a, an evening meeting at Martin's. His memory is, I mean, I thought my memory was bad. <laughs> First of all, you, no, you might be misremembering. No, no. All first of all, you and I met at Wagamama's. That's the first I heard of the idea. Okay, oh, the fine. idea. Yes. Uh, uh, and it was like, you know, would you be interested right. in being yes. involved in it? Yeah. Then we had. A- then we came to see you. I remember it was after dark. I just remember being sort of huddled over <laughs> some notes in your house in Clapham. Right. And that was the real sort of journey. Yeah, yeah. Thing. We literally sort of shook hands and we agreed that we were going to try and make this happen. Yeah. And, and, then, and then a decade of poverty Yeah, then, then a lot of rolling <laughs> boulders uphill. I mean, it, ha- it has it been, it's been a long It was fascinating that early period, though, because it was, very, it was driven by that kind of desire to do something. I mean, we were all fervid in our yeah. enthusiasm yeah. for doing it. And then we just ran into... Well, you brought Tony on board, who became our, yeah. someone with you know, sound financial yeah, sense. sense. We actually which... found someone who could raise some money or get yes. some investment. We knew nothing about uh, that. It has to be said very little, because in fact, as we were doing this, the dot-com bubble burst. burst. Yes. What was interesting is that we had lots of meetings with various people yes. who were looking to put seed capital and things. Yes. Um, and they're virtually all gone, and we're still we're still, we're still there. <laughs> well, in a way, true. the best thing that happened is we didn't get major investment. And yeah, we had to kind of pretty much do it, put up ourselves up by. Our I own think we've track. always said, in retrospect, thank God we didn't get sort of two million dollars yeah. because we almost certainly would have spunked mm. it all and had nothing to show for it. I would have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, speaking for yourselves, guys, yeah. I just had a really, really nice, comfortable life. But, um, <laughs> Isn't that the same thing But actually, what I, remember, <laughs> what I remember was we would meet people in, in towers in the city. That's right. In boardrooms. And they would take us really seriously and we'd do prospectuses for them and... Mm. You know, we learnt as we were going along, and nothing ever came of any, anyway, right. except for we did spend a hilarious day with Dave Stewart. Well, Dave's house, not a million miles from Sunny. Uh, well, and, uh, and, and Dave did 
And Dave did? Chuck some money in. Dave yeah. was doing a lot of big blue sky thinking. He was involved. more Paisley sky yeah. thinking, I think. Well, and he was Dave. involved with Paul <laughs> Allen of Microsoft yes, that's right. um, fame and trying to get something off the ground called the Artist Network. And, yes. and, and it was, it was, well, it was, it was a, either ahead of its time or it was misconceived. But he did put some money into Roxback Pages. Yeah. He also gave us an office in Crouch down here right. in London. So yeah, Dave no, really no, played yeah. it. He played did. his part in those early days. And, I mean, Martin, of course, you had a proper grown-up job anyway. Well, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, you than, know uh, I am a professional dilettante, really. I mean, I, far from you it. know, I maybe... In fact, when Mark and I were in a band together, I was still working at the Observer magazine, you know, for two of those years. It was like two weeks Hot House, two weeks Observer. Yeah, right. yeah. It, uh, and and uh, everyone put up with that, which is probably... In retrospect, a mistake. Yeah, maybe I should have committed more. No, no, but I, no was, I, think um, it was, I think it was very wise. <laughs> it meant I didn't take much from the advances, so that was quite. No, that's you know, It was quite. That was quite a good thing. We uh, met every so Monday I, evening at my place that's in right. Clapham. With there were sort of six or seven of us, yeah, weren't there? Absolutely. Because we had yeah. William Hyam came Your in as our marketer, yes. our friend Tom Butler. So we, you know, at this point, we still really thought and of course, that we could uh, raise uh, James some decent the much missed. James Sandlands, yeah, dear man, who, 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 yeah. whose who's very premature death was a real blow in those yeah. early yeah. stages, and so he's he's still part of Rock's Back Pages in in my mind, and was yeah. was just such a dear soul, yeah. and, and 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 a grown up, and he and Tony, in a sense. I think made it possible. Yeah, I think so. without them, for us, yeah, in fact, yes. the discipline it, it, was there. It was actually James who brought Tony in. I'd met Tony ah, before. Right, I'd right, been designing yes. websites right. for his, com- yes, his various companies, was uh, but it was James who suggested that Tony's the guy mm. who can really sort of like tie things together. So let's salute Tony yeah. while we're on the yeah, subject because Tony's been the grown-up through all of this for us, the financial Bally. director yeah. for many years. And a man who saw yeah. Otis Redding in 1964 or whenever it was. <laughs> you know, I mean, a big and music played fan. Hammond Organ and in an R&B band Indeed. at Cambridge. Huge Steely Dan fan. Yeah. Yes. I mean, you know, loves his We music. could all bond around Steely Dan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, <laughs> you know, thank you, Tony. I'm, there's no doubt that without you, the thing would have crumbled a long time ago. Yeah. We were able to keep this thing going even when it was very very difficult yeah. and we were just not getting very much subscription activity yeah that's absolutely right yeah. and, absolutely and right. signing writers and yeah. the whole organisational thing I think we've probably reached the point mm. that we kind of dreamed of reaching uh, it absolutely is what ago. we hoped it would be and we have to thank of course all the writers for coming yeah. but we started with just a sort of a small critical mass yeah. of probably 25 to 30 writers, including some big names yeah. like, like Charlie Murray, uh, some American writers. I think uh, Charlie Gillett came on board, mm-hmm. um, you know, Paul Williams quite early on. Yeah. So, you know, we had big names which then brought in many other names. Yeah. And we now have over 700 yeah. writers on Roxback Pages wow. and, and such a, a wide spread of different types of writers on, on well, all genres. Well, that was always the dream, wasn't it? It was that you would find those things that no one remembered. Everyone remembers Rolling Stone. Yeah. Everyone remembers the great bits of music yeah. journalism, but who remembers mm. Beat magazine? Well, or, well, and, they're, well, and they're often y- the fantastic you know, I, I, I rave on this, this podcast frequently about Dawn James yeah. and, and her writing for Rave. Well, for that, that's another discovery. And, mm. and she's gone from pop music journalism history, and it turns out she's one of the best in, in writing in 1965. Yeah. So there's all of that that, 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 that I, haven't, I have a real passion, actually, for the teen writing, for the pre-serious 
rock writing. Yeah, well, they through, were there. You through know, discovering a mag that I read when I was eight, which is mm. fabulous. <laughs> and it, you get it now, and you look at it. First of all, it's brilliantly designed. I, yeah. might, I had a discussion via Paul Gorman with Neville Brody. Did, were you influenced by it? And he denied it. But, I, <laughs> but, but it's a lie. I mean, mm. if you look at the fabulous yeah. magazine, 1964-65, and you look at the face, there's an absolute straight line in wow. aesthetic yeah. terms. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so finding all this this other writing, other than the stuff which has been historicised, yes. there is there are certain fixed shibboleths about what rock was and yeah. who wrote yeah. about it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually, what we've found there's all this other stuff. Nine, in the mid sixties, if I'd been my age, or let's say my twenties or thirties in the mid sixties, I'd been reading Record Mirror because it wrote about black music in a way that no, no. one else wrote about yes. black music. Norman Joplin, one of yes, our writers. Yes, Norman Joplin's great. great you, you, you know, so, so for us, for me, it's been a, a voyage of discovery, mm-hmm. of finding all of this fascinating stuff. That's absolutely right. I mean, uh, it's great you mentioned Norman because he probably was the first really quite decent writer in the pop press, yeah. someone who was a bit of a stylist. Yes, uh, yes, and, and, and we all owe a lot to him, I think. I mean, you see, for me, and I think we'd all three agree about this, is that music journalism, the great papers of the 70s, for example, were almost as important as the music itself. Yeah. You know, they, they, it was, it was a, such a symbiotic relationship. Yeah. The way mm. the, the, uh, the culture was, was covered yes. and processed and interpreted. And, uh, and, also and the, 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 the yeah. sounds yes. of the records, yes. the experience of going to gigs, it, they, it was all woven into one totally. thing. Totally. Now, people don't see it like that anymore. But for me, that's still incredibly important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if, you, if you think about it, now there's so much music around and it's uh, so fragmented. Yeah. But then, you know, if you were a Tom Waits fan... You may get three decent yeah. articles about Tom yes. in a year, yeah. yes. and you would read them and reread them, and you, yeah. you know, you'd be so excited yeah. by those. Things. And also, the chance are at that age in the seventies, you probably didn't have much money if you were in your teens or early twenties in the seventies. Records are expensive. Mm. I and mean, we did a comparison recently mm. of. Equivalent price, and an album would be like thirty-five pounds now. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, they were expen- so twenty-nine eleven was was yeah. it's thirty-five yeah. pounds now. And records are expensive. You had to be very careful how you spent your money on records. Yeah. and so the music press, you developed a thing of this is a writer whose tastes I trust. Yes, yeah, so that- and you'd follow the writers. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. As much as you would follow the band. Indeed. And remember, all you had was the radio. You didn't have Spotify, you didn't have access to all this stuff. You had the radio, so you had John Peel and a couple of the other, in England, a couple of the other evening DJs. And you had a music press. And that changed. I remember in 72. I was a melody maker reader, and yes, I got, yes. then I went out of London, packed off to boarding school for a tussle with the Metropolitan Police involving a lump of hashish. <laughs> Surely came, not. Came back, came back in 1973 <laughs> and went to a further education college, and suddenly yeah. the NME was on all the tables. Everyone had started reading the NME instead of the melody maker because yes. of the writers. Because of the writers, yeah. uh, 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 and so that. That was a process in and of itself. Yeah. So my job is fabulous. I've got the best job yeah. in the world. I get to kind of go mm. through all this stuff mm. and find new stuff. And every week, like talking about the McMiddles uh, review of Joy Division in 79, and that sort of stuff, which is incredibly exciting. He yeah. is talking about a band he saw the week before who are now effectively legendary. Mm. Yes, with mm. no, no idea they would ever become no. legendary Absolutely. or anything no, 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 no. beyond the next week. He's just simply responding to yeah. what he's seen. And also, like, just to mention, that obviously somewhere along the way, I don't remember the exact 
a year. But we had the idea that perhaps we could also digitise audio interviews. Yeah. You know, starting with a bunch of my cassettes. Matt Snow, we haven't mentioned Matt because he's a very important yes, he was part in the early of days. the early days and one of the first writers to come on board. Yeah. So we sort of got running with, with, with my old battered C90 cassettes and, and Matt's and then... And, and then we gradually, got yeah. up to 66 Sputnik. <laughs> yes, and it's all come to glorious fruition. But so we did start in parallel with all the, the text yeah. and articles on RBP. We, we began digitising a new audio interview every week. Yeah. And that's been going on some years now. I think we got over 600. Mm. And, and again, the, the value of that is that you could get an hour-long interview, which is distilled down to 1,500 words when yeah. in print. But there's all this other stuff which is talked mm. about. Yeah. And some of that stuff's more interesting than stuff that ends up in print, you yes. know, for a variety of different reasons. Well, when you, go, when you actually hear yeah. David Crosby talking in 1967, which is one of the earliest yeah, we've yeah. got, or, or Clyde McFatter talking to, wow. to Charlie Gillis yeah. in, in, yeah, in, I think... His sound 69 and the city or 70? interviews. Exactly. The, the, those interviews he did for that amazing book. Or maybe for his Atlantic book. I'm not sure. Mm. I can't remember which it was. But there's something about hearing, you know, like Mick Jagger talking in 1973, which is just different from people talking about the Rolling Stones or in a rearview mirror. Same, in or a rear even mirror. reading those same words or even, written yeah. down. Yeah. There's, a, there's a lot of amazing yeah, conversations yeah. in our audio library, yeah. which I've, you know, I, I, I've certainly found. You, you obviously get a sense of the artist's personality that, yeah. that you, you couldn't get yes. any other way. Sometimes too much of a sense of the artist's personality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some of them are incredibly funny. I mean, those recent ones we added on the Pistols, you know, oh, you know, Rotten and Vicious, just hysterically fantastic, funny. Fantastic. And Sid the other day. Yeah. And then we've got, we got like Cliff White's marvellous interview with a clearly stoned Marvin Gaye, and it's got a lengthy interview. Mm. And Marvin Gaye is off with the fairies to all intents and purposes. You know? 76. Yeah. It? yeah. It, it, it's, for me, that's gold yeah. dust. Mm. Yeah, absolute yeah. gold dust. And many more of those to come. Yeah, yeah. So, well, that's Rock's Back Pages. Not much more really to be, to, to be said about it. You know, here we are all this time later. Um, Greyer. Uh, Greyer, <laughs> more stooped. Um, but still full of, <laughs> full of passion, really, for the subject. Absolutely. Um, so, thanks, thanks for ringing me up that day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He said slightly I'd know. <laughs> yeah. I'd know what was going to happen as a result of that phone call. Um, I'd also just like to give a shout out, uh, Martin, to your wonderful book that nice. you, you published Thank last you. year. Yeah. Called Five Things I Saw and Heard This Week, which uh, essentially you put together and designed beautifully yourself. But it is the most wonderful kind of diary come scrapbook of just almost random passing obsessions, passions, things that you've enjoyed and loved with amazing pictures. Tell us just a bit about this. You've got a wonderful forward by the great Richard Williams, who gave me my first break in music journalism. Oh, I didn't know that. So tell us just a little bit about Dispatches from the Everyday World of Music, Volume 1. Well, yes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> if you, you need to volume, refer to it. If you put Volume 1 on it, it, it kind of implies that you don't have to do Volume 2, which <laughs> never happened with Dylan's Chronicles. No, I know, so, exactly. Uh, yeah. Maybe I'm just following in Bob's footsteps there. Well, really, the blog came about because I've always, you know, I mostly worked in magazine design. I had full-time jobs but I had a kind of freelance mentality and I would often have these thoughts I wanted to you know about music and about and I was interested also in in not writing about music in the way that 
the music press writes about it, which is obsessed with the new, the now, the thing that's being PR'd, whatever, and and a kind of album release schedule and all of that. But I wanted to say something about music. And then I'd always been a huge fan of Grail Marcus, who I mentioned earlier, and he did a very nice column called, I think it was called Different Things in Different Magazines, but it ran... Yes. And it was... Well, I it was remember, the original Real Life Rock. Real Life Rock. The Village Voice, real life maybe. Rock and I would always try yeah. and buy the Village Voice whenever I could because I was found New York fascinating. Yeah. And the Village Voice was kind of like unlike... Central any, to Central the experience to, Yeah, in New exactly. York. Yes. And they were these great articles and great photography too. The, yeah, that Black and white reportage photography. And he would do things like... He, he talked about being in a stationer's in Paris mm. and... Peggy Lee coming on, you know, the tape in the shop. And I thought, yeah, that's that's an interesting kind of way to approach it. You know, so that's what I did. I thought, of oh, five things, that sounds a bit like doable, you know. <laughs> and, you know, some of it was pictorial. I'd see an advert. Or when I started, I was working in Edgware Road. And, you know, round the corner were the Phillips Studios where Dusty and Scott Walker recorded. And then it was Solid Bond, Paul Weller bought it. And I thought, These are, it's kind of interesting. And you walk around that area of Marylebone and Paddington and, you know, there's a Joe Strummer subway and there's, yeah. a, there's a plaque saying John Lennon lived here yeah. in 1968. And so those were the things I thought, oh, this is funny. No one's... These things pass by. Or little references on radio programmes, the things that I thought were interesting. So I'd followed some of them up. Yeah. Uh, so it was really a collage of stuff. Yeah. But music, not, not reviewing films, not reviewing music, but just where things happen so the you know a funny song used over the end of the credits of a film yeah i'd, I'd kind of write about yeah. and then it just grew into that kind of thing less frequent now yeah. just there's so much well, the blog the blog of course the blog still goes on, on. Um, this is actually the first two years i thought i'll do a book of five years of five yeah. things because it was coming up to the fifth anniversary then i started doing it and i realized of course <laughs> I'd written so many words. <laughs> I'd done it every week, you know. Like it's like, and then there's also bits where I quoted from articles or, or transcribed bits of radio programs that I liked. So I was just kind of keeping all the trying to keep all these things. So yeah, I had to do. It's only two years is in the book. It's fabulous. volume two. <laughs> it's re- it's re- it's really fabulous. It well, is, that's very is, kind of you. Yeah. I thought I'd like thing. to do it properly. I, I'd been doing some jobs that I hadn't really enjoyed. Uh, yeah. Freelance design jobs. I'd been freelance for a couple of years now. I was doing freelance design jobs and I wanted to do something for myself. So I I hired a friend to edit it because I was always complaining about books being badly edited and factually incorrect and, you know, commissioned the illustration for the cover. So I wanted to do it as properly as I could. And I found that Amazon do this thing called uh, Create Space where you just, you know, you tell them what size and colour, bleed, all of those things and you upload the book. Uh, as a PDF file, and they print it on demand. So one copy. You order a copy of this book, they print one copy Mm. and ship it to you. And I was thinking, how does that even work? That's Mm. an amazing idea. And if you spot mistakes in your own book, which I have, that's that's version six. (laughs) You just upload a new PDF. Oh, God, I've got version one. (laughs) Bloody hell. Littered. Littered. (laughs) Littered. (laughs) Buy it now, folks. It's much better. (laughs) I absolutely do recommend version 27 uh, of Martin's wonderful book. Um, Before we go and hear a second snippet of Seek Seek. Sputnik, I do want to ask you why there is a framed photograph of Mario Testino's portrait of Princess Diana. Well, when I heard I was coming... Sitting next to you. (laughs) When when you invited me kindly on, I thought, well, what I need to do is get a rider for this appearance. (laughs) And so I sent over... um, I needed a six-foot sofa and a love seat, a bottle of Shivers Regal and a packet of cough drops, 
100 prunes and figs and a framed photo of Princess Diana, which I'm holding here. It's lovely. Uh, and 24 long stem dethroned, dethorned red roses. So, and then I said, it's a quiz. Who are the, who's, whose riders did they come from? Oh. Well, I mean, do six we want, do we want to put that seat. quiz to our list? Yeah, no, it's good. give us the answers. Okay, six, six foot sofa and a love seat. That's Elton John. A bottle of Shivers Regal and a packet of cough drops is just an excerpt from Frank's alcohol list. Uh, Frank Sinatra, that is. 100 prunes and figs and a framed photo of Princess Diana was part of Britney Spears' rider. I mean, I think Britney is a genius, That's actually. I, he listened to the That's records, so Peace of Me, one of the greatest songs ever yeah. written we, 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 yeah, I'm, yeah. I, we like our Did Britney. Did you watch the Max Martin documentary? No, I've got it. So, it's so, worth it. Remaining uh, oh, the remaining one was 24 long stem dethorned red roses, <laughs> which is the Rev Al Green. And, is it? Yes, and as Mark and I went to see Al Green a, a couple of years ago uh, at the Royal Albert Hall, and he's touring again in mm. the States. Uh, yes, yes. It was sensational. Yeah. There was no diminishing of his power. No. And he orchestrates the band. I yeah. mean, he good, also but, hands out the red roses. And he hands out the dethorned. De- very thoughtful. Uh, yeah. but, but the orchestration of the band... They they turned on a sixpence. So he was the the, the I mean, tension, the, the, the release. The usual psych like... a bit too much medleyization of his Absolutely, story. but his but voice, would... his his voice is in great nick because he's in that church every Sunday, yeah. doing it in just in Memphis. You know, yeah. he's kept his voice in fantastic, sensational. Memphis. And uh, yeah, I would recommend. You, if Al Green comes to your town, mm-hmm. buy tickets. Yeah, don't be disappointed if you only get like fifty-five minutes because Al Green uh, only does fifty-five minutes. But it but will it's be a great fifty-five minutes. Okay. Well, so another difficult segue back to CC from the Reverend Al Green. Does anything segue to CC Sparkney? But Mark, talk us out. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think this is just. We like bitching here at Rock's Back Page, and having Tony James bitching about Billy Idol is, I think, a very good way to kind of ease our way out of this podcast. No envy or bitterness there, really, on Tony's part. Well, look, thanks for joining us, as ever. This has been the Rocks Back Pages podcast. It's goodbye from Mark. Bye! It's goodbye from our very special guest, Martin. It's been brilliant goodbye. having you, Martin. Uh, and well, it's goodbye very, from very me. Fun. So see you next week. Thanks again. Bye! Bye. So, Don't ask me about Billy Idol. <laughs> well, that crossed my mind, but then I thought probably. I mean, um, I've got lots of awful quotes about Billy Idol. Do you ever see him anymore? Billy Idol. Because he's he's gone almost the other way. I've never so much beautiful body contained so little. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good. Um, he's, would you agree he's gone the other way? I mean, he's still treading. He's someone who's still treading. When I read that, that interview of you was saying slagging off about all the getting pissed and lying in the gutter and stuff, he seems to be someone who's maybe pursuing that path a bit. He was wanting to be to live that dream mm. and become that when he ain't really mm. you know I think he writes great tunes mm. right but the fantasy he lives out is nonsense mm. that he want, you know when I first met him he wanted to be the rebellious dirty drug taking rocker mm. you know it's, you can't use this because it's, it's really not fair no, but you know he always wanted to be that and he's finally moved to America and he's sort of living out that fantasy you know successfully I mean? As well, very, very successfully, yeah. but you know, I'd rather be successful and be healthy to enjoy it. Six, six, my neck, I'm
That was Julian Henry hearing from Tony James of Sieg Sieg Sputnik in 1985, concluding this week's Rock's Backpages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Martin Collier, whose blog can be found at fivethingsseenandheard.com. The book, Five Things I Saw and Heard This Week, is available on Amazon. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Murison Bowie. As ever, you can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. I love technology.